Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Jason Hansen. I am currently serving as the chair of the Elder Board. And I tell you that because that will explain why I'm up here this morning. Uh, Pastor Brent thought it would be a good idea that while he's gone for a few weeks to have a church elder teach one of the Sundays. And um, I teach over, I'm the primary teacher in one of our grow groups. And so it was a natural fit. He asked if I would be willing to do it. And so obviously I'm here before you. So I said yes. It seemed like a really good idea. But now that I'm looking at your faces from the stage, it's a little nerve wracking. But for better or worse, I'm your substitute teacher today. I know that when uh, a substitute teacher uh, is in school, they usually show a movie. We're not doing that. But what we are going to do today is we're going to show a psalm. So before we get to our specific psalm, Psalm 1 this morning, let me give you some quick background information on the book of Psalms. Um, as you know, there's 150 psalms. By far, it's the largest book of the Bible by chapter count. But I know there's resident Bible scholars in here. It is not the largest book of the Bible by word count. What do you think is the largest book of the Bible by word count? Dramatic pause. It is Jeremiah, with Genesis being number two and the Psalms being third with 30,000 words. Anyway, when talking about the Psalms, we should immediately ask ourselves, well, what are we talking about? What is a Psalm? So in general, they were songs and prayers and poems that were used by the Israelites for worship. A great many were written by David, but there are some that were written by others as well, and some are anonymous. They still are an integral part of the lyrics of our modern worship, and in some churches today, they are sung exclusively for worship. <clears throat> But they're most commonly used by us devotionally, right? They're used devotionally for our meditation worship. They're used uh, in funerals and weddings and sympathy cards, cards of encouragement. They still form a major part of the life of the church today. Obviously, they're God's words. There are many ways that we can categorize and outline the Psalms. Many have done that. Um, here's one way to do that and to see the scope of what they address. In this graphic that you now see, each bubble represents a specific psalm, represented, if you can see that small, uh, from, with a number inside of each bubble. And interestingly, the bubble size represents the relative size of that psalm. For instance, the bubble the size of Jupiter, kind of right there in the middle, is Psalm 119, which again, for you Bible scholars out there, it is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is comparable to the entire book of Psalms, and um, excuse me, of Philippians, and the entire book of James in size. And in this graphic, I like this because they're grouped by genre. Um, this is just, this is a Logos Bible software. Um, it's how they've done it. Others have done it differently, but this hits the main themes and genres. In the Psalm of, uh, in red, you see Psalms of praise. In the blue, you see Psalms of lament. Look how big the blue section is in the Psalms. In the minty section there, you see Psalms of trust. Green is Psalms of thanksgiving. And wisdom is the yellowish section there. And of course, there's royal Psalms, maybe the peachy orange. I'm not sure how it's coming out in color. Uh, the orient around the king. Now, if we take a quick look at the themes of the Psalms, this is what we see. And yes, that is meant to be overwhelming on the eyes. I know that it's overwhelming, but it's meant to impress upon you how extensive the topics are that the Psalms address. 
Now, when you see the numbers in there, perhaps up there for worship number 85, that doesn't mean that it's Psalm 85. That means there's 85 psalms that include the theme of worship, and so on and so on down the list. And in this way, you can see not only what the major themes of the psalms are, you can see the incredible breadth of what the psalms address and understand why they are so important in the daily life of the church today. So with that brief overview, let's zero in on our specific psalm today and to coordinate perhaps with my first time being up here, let's do Psalm 1. It's page 448 in the Bibles in front of you, at least most of them. I don't know about the large print. Psalm 1 for you is a familiar psalm most likely because, as I said, it is the first psalm. It has almost a Proverbs feel to it. It's usually classified as a wisdom psalm for that reason. That was that yellowish section that we saw. And being the first psalm, along with Psalm 2, it actually serves as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. So what we're going to hear in Psalm 1 is going to be a foundation for everything that we see and hear and encounter in the Psalms. So with that, let's actually get to Psalm 1. Let's read it together. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So let's start just as the psalm does with the good news. And actually, it's great news. Let's start there first. The very first words of the psalm are supposed to create in you uh, an attitude of uh, joyful expectation. How? It's because they say that we can be blessed. It says that God promises us a blessing. The phrase in verse 1, blessed is the man, literally means how happy is the man or how joyful is the man. And it carries the implication of receiving a favorable circumstance. And in verse 3, it literally says just that. In all that he does, he prospers. So that sounds really good to me. Blessing and favor and prosperity, I'm in for that. And as I was thinking about it, in fact, I think I can actually help God out on this. I have some really good ideas on what the word blessing should mean. What happy, joyful, favorable circumstances should be like. And here's, here's kind of what I think. I think money. I think it should include material things, um, power, cool vacations, and lots of people liking me. Those are the five that I think God should use for me. Perhaps your list is somewhat similar. But God's ways are not my ways, or he's not your ways, thankfully. They're infinitely wiser and better and more wonderful. And his definition of what prosperity is and what blessed is is far more weighty and far more beautiful than my shallow wish list. 
In fact, that's why the psalm says blessed rather than happy. Perhaps you were wondering like I was, well, if it means happy, then why not just say that? Because in saying happy and saying happy is the man, something's lost. You see, blessed carries the correct connotation that this has come from someone. It is something that's been bestowed on us. This isn't just a general happy feeling that anyone can tap into or that's something that you can come up with on your own. This blessing is given by God and it comes from him. So that means that his infinite goodness and wisdom is going to define for us what a true blessing is. Again, not, not myself, not you, not our wish list. The true, good, awesome God defines what a blessing is. And the picture that we're given in Psalm 1 of what God's bestowed blessing is, is a tree. Now, perhaps that's mildly anticlimactic for you, especially coming off my list of five. To hear a tree, I need some definition. And we need to understand this, that when God gives us a picture or a metaphor like the tree, he's not just giving us a convenient kind of close, pretty good, in the ballpark kind of a picture, he's giving us rather the perfect metaphor to capture exactly what he wants to communicate and the truth that he wants. So in verse 3, he says this. He says, blessed is the person who is, uh, uh, the blessed person, excuse me, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. So this tree that's planted by streams of water, constantly supplied by life-giving and life-sustaining hydration, always yielding the fruit that it was designed to produce, never withering, is a picture of stability, flourishing, endurance, permanence, beauty, strength. This could be you. This could be us. And this is actually the very life that you have always wanted. This is what you've been thirsting for all of your life. You haven't been thirsting ultimately for cars or the latest iPhone model, a better body, or the approval of others. You actually have been thirsting to be like this tree that yields God-produced fruit. And you've not ultimately been thirsty for things that rust or break or get lost or end up in the garbage but rather you've been thirsting for a life that doesn't wither, that doesn't diminish, or that's going to waste away. So as we talk about this tree, let's get specific. More specifically, what is this fruit that this tree produces? Well, in Ephesians, it tells us that the fruit is goodness and truth. And in Colossians, it tells us that goodness and truth produce works, and those good works are the fruit. But Galatians sums it up for us, right? This tree produces fruit that is a life of love and the experience of joy and peace and the ability to be patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and to have self-control. Can you imagine what that would be like to have that kind of life? What if this consistently described your life and not just for a couple weeks last year? Or that day when it was 72 degrees and it wasn't humid and it was sunny and beautiful and you golfed really well. 
Oh, wait, that was for me. <laughs> that, was, that was mine. What if it wasn't that? What if it wasn't just this temporary, fleeting, something you grasp for, cotton candy type of thing? What if it was who you were? And what if it was how you existed? God offers that blessing to you that you could actually be like this tree and produce that kind of fruit. And in conjunction with the fruit, it also said this, that it has a leaf and leaves that do not wither. What does that mean? The book of Jeremiah actually echoes this very same truth that we just encountered in Psalm 1, talking about the one who trusts the Lord, and it's going to help us here. Jeremiah 17, 8 says this, He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's a little more detail on what Psalm 1 is talking about. Wouldn't you love to be rid of the fear that so easily troubles your life? And wouldn't you love to be relieved of the anxiety that's just an undercurrent to everything that you do? Wouldn't you love to have a life that had stamina when others wilt? That's what it means to not wither. That's what it means to have leaves that don't wither. To not succumb to fear when the heat of life comes on you. When the temperature of your life and the culture and your Twitter feed starts to dry everything up in your life and to not be overcome by anxiety when hardship and adversity and pressure arrive in your life. I want this. I have to believe that you want this too. And we need this. We need to be like the trees of Psalm, the tree of Psalm 1. Your spiritual well-being, which is represented by the tree in Psalm 1 and in verse 3 particularly, is the most important well-being. Your spiritual well-being is the source of all other well-being. The world wants you to think that physical well-being or emotional well-being is primary, but the Creator who made you and who wrote Psalm 1 says that what's going on in your heart is the supreme and essential issue. It's at the core of your life, and it is there that He brings His true blessing. That is what the blessing of the tree in Psalm 1 represents. Now, nice, I see it, but how do I get it? How do I get this blessed blessing? Blessed is the man, right? And it says this, blessed is the man who? Blessed is the man who does what? Well, the psalm gives us two things. Let's read it again, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. So two characteristics are going to describe the one who was blessed. And let's actually start with the second one verse. Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So the law of the Lord there in verse 2, it alludes back to the Torah. Right? The first five books. That's what the Torah is. The first five books of the Old Testament. Those books contain the record of God's commands and directions for his nation Israel to live rightly before him. But more than that, through a record of God revealing himself to them through his words and actions in history. So the law of the Lord isn't some rule book that sits independent of God, but rather it's the whole revelation of who he is, of his glory and his holiness, his awesomeness and his goodness. So that's, that's what the law of the Lord broadly means. It's the Lord's instructions on how to live rightly and wisely before him and in relationship with him and to know him. 
It's the knowledge of Him and His will for us, for our good and His glory. <clears throat> so we should hear law of the Lord this way this morning. It's His word to us. It's Scripture. It's the Bible. It's what the Bible reveals to us about who God is, and that it's Him, that you are encountering the creator God of the universe in Scripture. But notice in verse 2 that the blessing isn't just for those who have heard about this law, that it's there, or know about his law and instructions like some academic subject that they're studying, or who lovelessly obey that law like a religious checklist. That's not who's blessed. Who's it for? It's for those who delight in it, who take pleasure in it, God's blessing relates directly to your affection for him and his words. So very simply, just think about your favorite hobby or pastime. Think about Netflix. Think about the last binge-worthy show that you watched and ask yourself this, and I'm asking myself this too, do I even have that much enjoyment about my creator and his words to me in scripture? Do I delight and who God is and what he has said. That's who's blessed. Psalm 1 says God's blessing is for those who want what he wants and loves what he loves, love what he loves, and therefore love him. It's not just rules, they love him and want to know and learn and follow that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, right? Like Romans 12 says, his blessing is for those who delight in him. But furthermore, verse 2 adds something else about those who delight in God's instruction they meditate on it day and night. The word meditate means to continually contemplate, to think, to chew on. As Dr. Jim Hamilton notes, it carries the conviction of muttering. It literally has this undertone of muttering to yourself what? Under your breath, constantly speaking and reciting and chewing on the words of God. And that meditation, that muttering happens day and night, as verse 2 says. And that's a simple way of saying always, at all times. It means that those who are blessed to become the stable, flourishing, enduring, beautiful, strong tree, they revolve each moment in their entire life around him and his words. And if I'm really honest, that's not typically how I approach being blessed. And if I'm really honest, that's not typically how I want to be blessed. It's usually, right, by my own spiritual accounting, something like this. You know, I did a lot of good things recently, probably at least a dozen. And I didn't lose my mind when that guy zoomed past me in the construction zone and cut in at the last minute. That was pretty good. And I've been to church for six weeks in a row. So let the blessings flow, God. I've done my part, right? It's this attitude of, I've done good things lately, Lord. Now it's your turn. That's probably how I approach blessing. But that's not what God himself is telling us here, is it? The blessing of the tree, of becoming like this tree, occurs when our daily life revolves around him. When our heart's desire in all the moments of life is to continually know him and his ways. When we are continually excited and committed to speak and to act and to do as God wants us to do, that's how the blessing is bestowed. Willem Vangermeren said this, It is not the setting apart of a special time for personal devotions, whether morning or evening, but is a reflection on the word of God in the course of daily activities. Regardless of the time of day or the context, 
the godly respond to life in accordance with God's word. We delight in it and meditate on it day and night. That is the blessed man, the blessed person of Psalm 1. Now, a second thing. The blessed person does something else here in the psalm. In addition to delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night, verse 1 says this, He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And understanding verse 1 here, many have identified specific meaning right to the importance and the exact order and the progression of the terms. And that will be true. But this morning, let's think of it this way. Most fundamentally, taken as a whole, these descriptive triads, right, walks, stands, sits, in the counsel, way, and seat of the wicked, sinners, and scoffers, they all come together to communicate a singular message. That the blessed man, along with delighting and meditating on God's law, refuses to align himself with the way of life and wisdom of those who reject God. Let me say that again. They refuse to al- he refuses to align himself with the way of life and wisdom of those who reject God. So, verse 1 gives us the message that in every aspect or posture of life, walking, sitting, standing, the person who will be blessed does not allow the principles and the worldviews and actions of those who oppose God to determine for them their way of life. So, to those of us who want to be blessed, let's ask ourselves a few hard questions. And I am asking myself these same questions. These questions like, are we wanting to be blessed by God yet living like the world around us? And are we wanting to be blessed by God, yet establishing our opinions and thoughts and convictions apart from the instruction of God's Word? Do our opinions, thoughts, and and, uh, feelings seem to be the same as the world around us? And are we wanting to be blessed by God, yet more interested in doing life with those who reject Him than with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we are called to love our enemies. In Jeremiah chapter 29, God told his people to seek the welfare of the city that they were in. Jesus himself prayed that people wouldn't be taken out of the world. Jesus himself was even accused of being a friend of sinners. But that's not what we're talking about here. That is totally different than walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers. For what that means is to gladly align yourself with the culture over Christ, foolishness instead of wisdom, evil instead of good, and to embrace a curse over the promised blessing of Psalm 1. And that word curse, actually, the psalm moves to. That curse is how it concludes, with a warning to those who oppose God that they will perish. To arrive at that conclusion of the psalm in verses 5 and 6, we need to see that a consequential division has happened in the psalm between all mankind, one of eternal significance. And the names the psalmist uses in verse 1 is going to help us see that. It's going to reveal that and help us move us to the psalm's weighty conclusion. Again, Psalm 1 describes those who are against God as the wicked, sinners, and scoffers. Those are three different ways of describing the same people, those who oppose and reject God. But they seem, they kind of evoke different reactions, don't they? Like, if I called someone a scoffer, that would probably be the least offensive of the terms. 
And that probably would even be a badge of honor to those that were called scoffers, right? They would be gladly accused of mocking Christianity in Christ because that's what they've done. They have vocally been hostile to it. So not worth dwelling on, but of the eight billion quotes you can find online that are scoffing at Christianity, this is some of the quotes of what it means to be a scoffer. And then if we think about the term sinner, that seems a little stronger, but it probably still would be met with ambivalence or even denial, right? Whatever, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as that person, or I'm pretty good, I do my best, um, or even at least I'm better than so-and-so. But we come to the term wicked. To use the term wicked, that feels different, doesn't it? That has a bite to it. It declares someone to be evil. It declares them to be guilty like a criminal. It sounds so condemning. It is condemning. And it gets to the heart of what the world hates about Christians and Christianity. It's perceived as incredibly judgmental and super self-righteous. But that's not my word. I didn't make that up. The Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to use that. And after verse 1... In verses 4 through 6, which of the names, sinner, scoffer, wicked, is the one that the psalmist uses principally to describe those who oppose God? It's the wicked. You see, I think it's easy to delude ourselves and to think that we aren't that bad. We know there's some really bad people in the world. We hear about them. And I just went and saw The Sound of Freedom the new movie that's out. Um, It's not a family movie, actually. It's about child sex trafficking. It shows restraint in what it depicts, but it's still sickening what's even insinuated. There are wicked people in the world. That is for sure. The problem is we just don't think it's us. But God is telling us in the psalm that everyone who opposes him, who rebel against his infinite holiness by doing what shouldn't be done, who reject and ignore and dismiss and are hostile to his infinite goodness and glory, that tell the creator of creation, no matter how politely, yeah, no thanks, I'm not interested, I'm good. They are rightly called wicked by God. And so the use of the word wicked initiates in the second half of the psalm a comparison between the righteous and the wicked. As we just said, of the scoffers, sinners, and the wicked, the psalm now prefers to call them the wicked, And of the blessed man, in verse 1, he is now termed the righteous. Why is that? Because God wants us to see that there is no middle ground. There's no neutral ground. Ultimately, there are only two people in the world, the righteous and the wicked. And so in verse 4, the wicked, in direct contrast to the picture of the tree planted by streams of water, says the wicked are like chaff. So chaff is the dry, scaly, protective outer coating of wheat or grain. It's inedible, it's of insignificant weight, and it's the worthless part of the harvest. And so other biblical terms that you may be familiar with, threshing, that's how the chaff is loosened from the grain, and winnowing is how the chaff is separated from the grain. It's literally thrown up into the air where just a breeze will blow it away and separate it. Verse 4 says, the wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What a contrast with the tree of the blessed man who now is the righteous man. It leads the psalmist to conclude with this. Therefore, in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When God's judgment comes, either in some form now or at the end, when God comes in his sovereign and perfect timing, and he finally does away with all injustice and evil and makes everything right, the way of the wicked will perish. They will not be able to withstand the judgment. That's why the psalm uses the word stand. They will not be able to withstand his judgment. They will be like chaff before him. There's not going to be any excuse. There's not going to be any resistance or any power that can turn aside God's judgment. They'll be like chaff before him. And that, you see, is actually the ultimate blessing of the tree that was in verse 3. That flourishing and endurance and uh, prosperity, it represents not only this life, but the life to come. It represents eternal life that begins in you. Those whom God blesses will stand in the judgment. They will withstand God's judgment, leading to eternal life in the congregation of the righteous, the psalm says. That's the culmination of what it means to be the blessed man and the tree planted by streams of water and what it means to be the righteous of verses 5 and 6. So as we bring this to a close, if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, when you hear the word righteous, you immediately know that you need to turn your hearts and your minds to Jesus Christ. All of us who have come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we should immediately, when we hear the word righteous or righteousness, confess we don't have it. We don't have any righteousness on our own. We've earned nothing. We all fall short of the glory of God because we've sinned. And on our own, none of us is righteous. No, not one. And the wicked, that's not some category of people that we've separated ourselves from because we were better than them or because we were smarter than them, as if God chose us on, our team, on his team because we were just such good people that he had to have us, like God needed us. Uh-uh. Until Jesus Christ broke into our lives, yours and mine, and saved us by his mercy and grace, we were the wicked. We were part of the wicked. So all the glory and all the praise and all the honor goes to Jesus Christ, not us. And in that way, Psalm 1, like all of the Old Testament, it anticipates and points forward and looks to Jesus Christ. He's the one who fulfills the hopes, the commands, and the promises of Psalm 1. So when Psalm 1 says the blessed are, are planted by streams of water, it's Jesus who becomes identified as that water. Right? John 4, Jesus answered her, Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is the living water. And in John 4, two verses later, also says that those who drink of his water, him, they will never be thirsty again, ever. The streams of living water, the streams of water are Jesus. And when Psalm 1 says we're to delight in the law of the Lord, there's only one person who did that perfectly. That was Jesus. Matthew says that he did not come to abolish it, but he fulfilled it. 
Jesus is the only one who perfectly delighted in the law of the Lord, not you and I. And because Jesus perfectly fulfilled them, when we see God's blessing for the righteous in Psalm 1, we've now come to know that it's only Jesus who was righteous and it's only Jesus who was our righteousness. You can only be called righteous because of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The blessed the blessed man, the blessed people boast in Jesus Christ because it's actually Jesus who was the perfect blessed man of Psalm 1. It's Jesus. And you only have access to the blessing of Psalm 1 through him. So then here's where we end. Christian scholar Gordon Wenham gives us our ending challenge. He asks this. There are two types of people, two types of life, two conclusions, which will you follow today? Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have access to the blessing of Psalm 1. You can delight in who God is and in the goodness of his wisdom and instruction. You could become like that tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. That could be you through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. The only alternative the psalm gives us is to be like chaff and to perish. There are two types of people, two types of life, two conclusions. Who will you follow to, who will you choose to follow? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you're a God who blesses and that you said you'll bless us if we will delight in you and your instructions and if we will not walk, stand, or sit with those who oppose you. Father, we need your blessing. We need the life that only you give. We need the fruit that you bring in our lives. Lord, we feel it. We wither and will wither without you. May you make us completely dissatisfied with the dryness of our lives. And may your psalm open our hearts today to start revolving all of our life and every moment around you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that if there's among us someone who would be claimed to be the scoffer or a sinner, part of the wicked, Lord, I pray today that they would give their life up to the true blessed one, Jesus Christ, that they would trade their life of opposition to you for his righteousness, and that they would not perish but live. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray all of this. Amen.